warm welcome to First Move this Thursday. Just ahead this hour, Kim Jong-un on the move. The North Korean leader visiting key military sites, the Pacific Fleet and a university in eastern Russia after meeting with Vladimir Putin. The Kremlin also confirming Putin has accepted Kim's invitation to visit Pyongyang. All the latest from that meeting in just a moment. Plus, the humanitarian crisis in Libya. The floodwaters may be receding, but the human toll climbs after that catastrophic flooding. A live report coming up next too. And armed and ready. SoftBank-owned chip designer Arm going public today, pricing its IPO at $51 a share. That's securing a $55 billion valuation share set to trade on the Nasdaq shortly. We'll be watching that. Hopefully that will lend a hand or even an arm to stocks today. Wall Street higher already pre-market, as you can see there. European stocks higher too after the European Central Bank hiked interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point to 4%. That well expected. That's the highest level since the euro was launched back in 1999. And across the Pacific, Asia's stocks closed in the green on Thursday. The Nikkei and the Kospi gaining more than 1%. The top performers there, as you can see. Lots to get to. As always, over the next hour, we do begin in Russia, where the North Korean leader continues his closely watched trip to Russia. Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin met for five hours on Wednesday vowing a closer military relationship, raising concerns, of course, once again from the West. South Korea's presidential official suggests that North Korean weapons are already being used by Russia in Ukraine. Paula Hancock's joins us now. Paula, to add to that, Japan also warning today that any arms deal between the two nations could potentially violate UN Security Council resolutions. I think the message from these two leaders is, and what? why do we care? Well, it's problematic, really, Julia, isn't it? When you consider one of the uh, the UN Security Council members, Russia, is one of the potential uh, parties to this uh, this deal that that could potentially be done. The fact is that there were no press conferences, there was no documents, no communique, so we don't know exactly what was decided between these two leaders. But uh, all indications are, and according to US officials, they were moving towards a military drill. South Korean Unification Minister today as well saying that he had deep concerns about pursuing some kind of military deal. And then we also had the presidential office official telling journalists that they believe uh, that already certain kinds of weapons from North Korea have been used by Russia on the Ukraine battlefield. So there is a lot of uh, concern out there. Now, we have heard that uh, from from both sides, North Korea and Russia, uh, that uh, Kim Jong-un has extended an invitation to Vladimir Putin to come to Pyongyang, which he has accepted, according to those uh, those sides. Now, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, apparently will be heading to Pyongyang in October, uh, likely to, to lay the groundwork for, for this kind of meeting. Meeting. It would be a significant meeting. Uh, this meeting uh, just yesterday was significant. But there hasn't been a Russian president who has gone to Pyongyang in 23 years. It was back in the year 2000, the last meeting. And it was Russian President Vladimir Putin who went to meet the then leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un's father, the late Kim Jong-il. So certainly it would be a significant move. And it's also suggesting to uh, to the West, to the US and its allies here in, in Seoul and in Tokyo, that what we saw yesterday 
was just the beginning of this potential uh, blossoming friendship and alliance, uh, worrying alliance in many ways between these two leaders. We also heard another detail from the Kremlin, from the uh, uh, the spokesperson there, Dmitry Peskov, about the gifts that were exchanged between Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. Apparently, they both exchanged firearms as gifts. Carbine, which is a type of uh, rifle, which really continues the, the military theme that has surrounded this entire visit. And it does continue. Kim Jong-un is still in Russia at this point. We understand, we, well, we were told by Vladimir Putin himself, that he would be going to see some kind of military demonstration uh, by the Russian Pacific Fleet. He was also going to a factory to see production of civilian and military uh, items. Uh, so no no more details than that. We haven't seen any footage of Kim Jong-un today, but certainly it shows uh, that, that military was the overwhelming theme of this meeting in the past couple of days. Julia? Certainly, an exchange of arms already taken place, to your point, in terms of the gifts. I believe it was swords back in 2019. Thank you for that for now. To desperate scenes now on the streets of the Libyan city of Derna after Sunday's massive flooding when, according to the Red Cross, a seven-metre-high wave wiped out buildings and washed infrastructure into the sea. Now local authorities are saying that they are simply unable to bury all the victims. The country's rival governments are also providing differing death tolls, ranging from at least 5,000 to more than 6,000 people, with 10,000 still missing. Ben Weedman joins us now on this. Ben, unimaginable, the, the scale of the wave that the people there faced. I, I read also that the mayor of Derna had suggested perhaps up to 20,000 people may have lost their lives. Um, and that would be, I believe, just looking at some of the numbers, a fifth of the city's population. It's unimaginable. Yeah, we have to be careful, Julia, with these numbers because nobody really knows. And we've seen numbers ranging all over the place. But what's clear is that thousands of people have been killed. And this city and the government in eastern Libya based in Benghazi simply are incapable of dealing with the magnitude of this tragedy. Uh, we know that, for instance, they are struggling with just dealing with the sheer number of dead bodies in the streets of Derna. The temperatures are high there. They're hovering around 30 degrees centigrade at the moment. And doctors are worried that with all of these dead bodies lying around, there's very much a danger of the spread of disease. And more bodies are constantly being found in buildings and washing up at sea. We've seen some very disturbing footage of large groups of bodies floating out uh, at sea. So they're really just the health challenge of all of these cadavers uh, is really mind-boggling. Now, for instance, the International Committee of the Red Cross has announced it's sending a variety of relief supplies, medicine, and other things, and among them, 6,000 body bags. The international community is starting to pick up in terms of uh, its response this morning from the Italian port of Brindisi. An Italian Navy ship uh, has departed with more supplies, tents and blankets, uh, mobile hospital and other equipment uh, to provide for the situation in Derna. But uh, given the fact that the country is divided, 
and uh, that for years these two governments have been at war with one another. Uh, what is clear and what we heard from the head of the World Meteorological Organization today at a press conference in Geneva is that the meteorological infrastructure of Libya has basically stopped functioning and therefore they were incapable of providing warnings to the population of Derna of the danger that Storm Daniel was bringing and they were they simply didn't provide they didn't put out any evacuation warnings or orders uh, for the population and in addition to that because the governments if you can even call them that, have been so busy fighting with one another, they've ignored the infrastructure. So those two dams, which according to one study put out by a Libyan academic, needed to be maintained, were not maintained, and therefore that may have contributed to this catastrophe. All of this human folly may have had a very large part in creating the situation where we're seeing this mind-boggling death toll. Julia? Ben Weedman, thank you for now. And for more information about how you can help Libya's flood relief efforts, you can go to cnn.com slash impact for more information. Now, Russia says it's repelled a Ukrainian attack in the Black Sea. Moscow says it destroyed five underwater drones attempting to strike one of its patrol ships. Now, as both sides burn through weaponry and ammunition at a rapid pace, Ukraine's allies are working against the clock to help provide more arms. Claire Sebastian reports. Yeah, this is ammunition, but without, uh, without, with, without power, you cannot fire this ammunition. Amid the high-tech displays at this sprawling International Defence Expo, the head of Germany's top weapons producer has a much less futuristic battle on his hands. To keep up supplies of these NATO-standard 155mm artillery rounds. The lifeblood of Ukraine's defence and now its counteroffensive. We doubled or tripled um, the, the, our, our resources, our capacities. We are able now to produce uh, next year 600,000 artillery rounds. He says that's more than six times their pre-war output. Not yet enough, though, to clear a multi-billion dollar order backlog. Three years ago, everything thought we can do everything with Air Force. It's not possible. Yes, we need strong land forces, and this is exactly what we produce. Are governments, and is the EU doing enough? Do you think they woke up quick enough to this production crisis, yeah. you could call it? The EU made decisions, and they said, OK, we want to invest. Um, there are, uh, we are still waiting at the moment for the final decisions. Ukraine can't afford to wait. The government tells us they're firing five to 6,000 of these rounds a day, but would like to be firing more than 10,000, much more than is currently being produced by its NATO allies. Russia, meanwhile, is firing 40,000 rounds a day, Ukraine says. Manufacturers in the US, Ukraine's biggest backer, have also rapidly scaled up. Not fast enough, though, to avoid having to sub in controversial cluster munitions this summer. We would provide cluster munitions because the alternative to providing cluster munitions was them not having enough bullets. We were at 14,000. You know, we were at 24,000 today. Next month we'll be at 28,000. So we've doubled our monthly output. You know, that's, that's quite significant. Um, some of these uh, more longer term, you know, investments, um, you know, beginning of next year, we'll start uh, realizing additional capacity. I think we are in a, 
in, in a phase of uh, right now of an uh, industrial war uh, where capacity is the big issue. Norwegian co-owned Namo, another major ammunition producer in Europe, says it has gone from making just a few thousand rounds a year to a rate of 80,000 a year. This is a f- totally changing our company. We are investing um, uh, at some sites 15 to 20 times more than we normally do uh, in order to build capacity. When you look at what's happening now with the counteroffensive moving relatively slowly, the fact that it had to start later than planned, President Zelensky says, because weapons deliveries were delayed, does that concern you? Uh, to me, it's a major concern, of course. We see the consequence uh, in the battlefield. So uh, I think we all uh, in the Western society has a, a common responsibility to step up this capacity. Claire Sebastian, CNN, London. And now to the largest public debut so far this year, chip designer Arm set to trade on the Nasdaq after pricing its IPO at $51 per share. An exciting day, of course, but the company's exposure to China remains one of the concerns for investors as the country contributes around a quarter of its sales. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, the bigger point there is that they don't control the revenues attached to those sales, but we'll come back to that. Um, This could be an exciting day because they're putting up less than, what, 10% of the stock in this IPO, and they've got some not insignificant cornerstone investors, Google, (laughs) Apple, (laughs) NVIDIA, AMD, wowzers. I mean, I'm excited. I've been excited about this one for weeks now. Shows what a nerd I am. It's the biggest IPO that we've had in a very long time since Rivian. Uh, And looking at what it's being valued at here, at the top range of $51 per share, um, $54.5 billion if banks also exercise their rights to buy shares. Now, that is considerably actually less than we thought even a month ago when people were talking about a 60 to $70 billion range. It's considerably more, though, than what SoftBank bought Arm for back in 2016. That was $32 billion. Or what it tried to sell it for to NVIDIA only last year. That was valued at $40 billion. You're right. There's only 10% being floated here. And about a sixth of the shares, I believe, have been set aside for some of those big investors. Intel, Apple, NVIDIA, Samsung... TSMC, it has been so quiet on the IPO front that this has got a lot of attention, not least because there are a few in the pipeline, like Instacart coming up. This is a different beast. This isn't a new fast growth startup company. I mean, this company was founded in the late 90s. It's been listed before. We know all of its uh, glories. We also know some of the clouds on the horizon. Yes. And we've sort of mentioned one of them. Let's go there because I think the good news is, to your point, that, um, arms technology and chips have never been in more demand given the technological advancement that we're seeing around the world. The problem is it's right in the middle of a, a geopolitical storm at, at the same time. And mm. what a quarter of their sales come from royalties effectively and from a Chinese part of the business that they don't effectively control. How much of a concern is that, do you think, for but- investors? Because they've certainly warned about it. There are two big issues. One is that it is so focused on smartphones. And yes, nearly every smartphone in the world has a bit of ARM technology in it. But people aren't aren't upgrading their phones. I mean, the new iPhone launch this week, I realized that I'm still on the 11. (laughs) So they're seeing revenue slip. They want to be an AI. They're not really there yet as a leader. And then there's this China issue. And you're right, this was really clear in the filing. Lots of warning. A quarter of their sales go to China. They have a really complex relationship with the entity out there, ARM China. 
fact, they say they hold a 4.8 percent, follow follow closely, 4.8 percent indirect ownership interest in Arm China through a 10 percent non-voting stake in a SoftBank-controlled entity that owns less than half of the Chinese company. Plus, Arm China has a history of late payments. Plus, as you mentioned, what about the geopolitical risk here between the West? and China. You're opening yourself to a lot of risk here. And I think investors have been warned. So we'll see whether they've still got appetite today. Yes, we're going to see how that trades. Um, You're still on the 11. Are you going to upgrade? Because this is interesting. CNN. This is my CNN phone. I I think it's time, right? Good luck with that. (laughs) That's taking us down a path we're not going down. Thank you very much for that. (laughs) Moving on swiftly. Straight ahead. Steady. As she goes. Maersk set sail with its first carbon neutral vessel. The CEO is up next to talk all about it. Plus, automakers shut down. The clock ticks towards a deadline to avert strikes at America's big three car makers. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and setting a course for a greener future. You're about to see the pride of Maersk's shipping fleet, the world's first green methanol powered container vessel. The Laura Maersk, pictured here arriving in Copenhagen, is a key part of the company's drive to become fully net zero climate neutral by 2040. The company also making waves with its investments into AI driven automated fulfillment centers for e commerce. But in its wake, of course, slowing demand and falling profits as the pandemic-led supply chain squeeze passes. Much to discuss. Vincent Clerk is the CEO and he joins us now. Vincent, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's talk about that container vessel to begin, please, because this is a hugely symbolic moment, I think, on your path to net zero. Talk us through the container and how it stacks up to the other vessels in your fleet. Yeah, Julia, you're right. It's a it's a really important moment for us. It's a very proud moment where we see our energy transition take a very concrete face in the face of Laura Maersk. It is a first step. It's 2000 containers that she can load. It's one of 750 ships that we operate today. But it was a step that had a really, really powerful impact already because what was a first when she was ordered has become now the dominating trend across the whole industry. She has created a lot of followership and today there is 125 ships that will be powered with green methanol that are under construction. So it's a real exciting view on what one decision can do for an entire industry and an entire sector. Yeah, it's a big statement and it was a big risk back in the beginning when this um, this decision was made. Uh, I remember it well. I know you've signed a deal with Equinor, I believe, to ensure you have the fuel to keep this going into the first half of next year. And then you hope to to fuel this from an e-methanol plant in Denmark itself. Um, just give us a sense. How does this compare in terms of cost again to some of the legacy fleets? What's the, the relative price difference to run this? So the price difference of, of the ship is relatively small. It, it comes, the ship by itself, the structure is the same as what you would see on a conventional ship. What really makes the difference is the engine, which is a dual fuel, and so it's, it's a little bit more expensive. What we have said is it, it costs about 7 to 8% more to, to build a ship like this with dual fuel and, and green methanol capacity. The second problem is the one that you alluded to, is actually to get the fuel. Mm. The fuel is more expensive than traditional uh, oil-based uh, fuel. And it adds up to a, to a cost premium of about 10% on, on the cost of, uh, of shipping, which so far hundreds of our customers have already signed up for uh, in, uh, in supporting also not only our 
decarbonization agenda, but their own, because our decarbonization of our scope one is really the decarbonization of the scope three of our customers. Yeah, I was about to say that. So you already answered my question, a 10% price premium, but can you give us it in percentage terms in terms of the number of clients that are already saying, look, we want to do this to reduce the carbon footprint of our supply chain, never mind anything else. Do you think you can get them all on board? Yeah. So we have, we have about 70,000 customers and we have a few hundreds of them that have already signed up for it. Some of them have signed up for part of their shipments, other for the, the entire shipments. It's a, it's a really meaningful step. Already today, more than 2% of all shipments have already transitioned to green shipping. But it is a long way to go until we have them all on board. And it will not happen only uh, by taking bold moves such as, as ordering Laura Maersk. We need to continue to work on having the proper financial incentives for a lot of these companies to do the right thing. And, and that, what this essentially means is a carbon tax. Yeah, I was about to say, what does that actually mean in practice? Because you obviously, as you mentioned, have 750 vessels. How long is it going to take to get all of those from, um, from dark to green effectively? And to your point, arguably, it puts mm. you at a relative disadvantage in the short term, at least with this investment, compared to competitors that aren't moving. The hope is that the incentive in structure, structure can change. And that's government led in order to, to facilitate that move quicker. What do you need? Yeah, so... For us, it has to take 17 years if we have to make it by, uh, by 2040, obviously. But we're, we're quite optimistic, actually, because the maritime sector is governed by the International Maritime Organization. It's a UN compact where all countries are represented. And here over the summer, it accepted uh, a resolution that will essentially create a global tar- carbon tax uh, that will come into effect in already in 2027. That will provide the right framework for not only Maersk, but for the whole industry to continue to lean into the decarbonization and be actually a good example of how a hard to abate sector can take its destiny into its own hands and really find solutions. Yeah, I mean, you're going to be well ahead um, in four years' time as that that kicks in. I want to talk about your results too, um, although congratulations once again on on the launch of this vessel. You warned about seeing a, a deeper pullback in container demand or global container demand and and volumes to fall as much as 4%. And the worst case scenario that you had, I remember, before that was around 2.5%. Some of that tied to the United Mm -hmm. States, Europe as well. Um, Talk me through that, but also China is an interesting one for me. There's still debate out over what kind of slowing we see there too. Yeah. So I think essentially what has been happening and has driven uh, the, the lower demand for shipment is, is over inventory. After years of delays and congestions, uh, there has been too much investment into, uh, into inventory and that has to be worked down. And that's what we've seen play out, especially in the US uh, during this year, but also to a certain extent in Europe. What's happening in China is a little bit different because whereas the consumer demand both in Europe and in the US has always so far kept on improving uh, or at least uh, surprising on the positive side. What we have seen is the opposite happening in China where consumer demand has surprised on the negative side. From a shipping perspective, that has a lot less impact because a lot of what is being consumed in China is actually built in China for China. And therefore the impact that this is having on our business is a lot less. But through the expansions that we have had across the supply chain in China, contract logistics, distribution, and so on, we're certainly feeling also this lower demand that we're seeing for a lot of the consumer goods. Interesting, but it's interesting that point that you made about some degree of insulation given where Chinese products are are produced and then consumed. Um, 
Vincent, final question. Why Laura? Why so Laura was actually, Laura was actually the ship that was the first ship 140 years ago that mm. actually transitioned from sailing to what was at the time a coal steamship engine. So it's a, it's a name that is charged with values for, for our company, our old company that has been through, that is going through right now his third energy transition. And it, it's, symbol, it's, it's symbolic of the, the pioneering spirit that we have had through all of this transition. And, and this Laura Maersk being the leader and, and the, the pathfinder for, for the rest of the industry, I think is a very appropriate name for her. Yes, it's a flag bearer. Vincent, always great to chat. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time. Vincent Clark there, Thank the you. CEO of Maersk. So we'll speak soon. Thank you. Okay, still to come here on First Move. Kim Jong-un's trip in Siberia continues. We'll discuss the meeting and what it could mean for the war in Ukraine with political scientist, author and president of the Eurasia Group, Angie Zero Media, Ian Bremer, when we return. Welcome back to First Move and Kim Jong-un's visit to Russia after his rare summit with President Vladimir Putin Wednesday. North Korean state media and the Kremlin say Putin has accepted Kim's invitation to visit Pyongyang at a, quote, convenient time. Separately, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov announced that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov will also visit North Korea in October. This summit between Kim and Putin comes at a critical juncture. Both South Korea and Ukraine have suggested that North Korea has already supplied Moscow with weapons to be used in its war with Ukraine. Now, despite warnings from the West, there is still a lot we don't know when it comes to a potential technology exchange between North Korea and Russia. Joining us now, Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media, joins us now. Ian, good to have you with us as always. The message seems to be, on a visual level at least, uh, we're stronger together, especially when we're deeply isolated as nations from much of the rest of the world. Yeah, the message is we have no friends uh, other than each other. Uh, I mean, let's be clear, uh, of all of the advanced industrial democracies, South Korea was one that had been kind of distant on the Russian invasion of Ukraine issue. Uh, Putin now doing everything he can to directly alienate and antagonize the South Koreans as well. Uh, There is no wealthy democracy uh, that is prepared to work with Russia at this point. Um, There are very few leaders anywhere in the world that are willing to make a pilgrimage at the head of state level to go say that they're aligned with President Putin. Kim Jong-un is prepared to do that. Um, But of course, Uh, Given how poor his country is, how isolated, uh, how much of a totalitarian leader he is, it just shows that Putin is scraping the bottom of the barrel in order to continue to effectively fight this war. Your South Korean point, though, is an interesting one. They've been clearly very reluctant to do anything other than provide humanitarian assistance, longer term loans. We saw that at the, uh, the G20 in particular. Does some kind of weapon exchange, if indeed we see that between Russia and North Korea, perhaps change the calculus for South Korea here, too? Or is that a step too far? No, absolutely it will. Uh, The the South Koreans now see Putin as a much bigger direct problem in promoting the interests of Kim Jong-un than they even see that of China and Xi Jinping. That's a big deal. Remember, I mean, China has really been the supporter, uh, the lender, the provider of aid of last resort for the North Koreans over the past decades. That is not true any longer. Now Putin is becoming close to an ally 
of North Korea, uh, you know, a big state visit welcoming to a, you know, uh, a, a, a high technology, bringing in all of the military leaders to talk about how they can coordinate announcing military exercises. Um, this is uh, this is really because Russia has absolutely nowhere else to turn. You may remember, Julia, when you and I were talking about the top risks for 2023 back in January. Number one, in my view, was what we called rogue Russia. The idea that Russia was becoming a rogue state, like Iran, like North Korea, not like a normal member of the G20. Well, of course, Putin can't go to the G20 anymore. He wasn't uh, even welcomed at the BRICS uh, meeting by South Africa. Um, and so, you know, what's he able to do? And the answer is Belarus, which is not really independent. Uh, Lao, uh, their leaders willing to come to Russia, and now you've got North Korea. This uh, speaks badly for Russia's trajectory, but it also shows that Putin himself is likely to become more risk acceptant on the global stage. What does that mean from here? Because as you correctly pointed out at the beginning of the year, he's becoming the sort of de facto leader of these rogue nations. But what we've also seen through the war in Ukraine is a pulling together, I think, of the G7 nations. We know that China's been sort of on the shelf with regards to the uh, prospect of weapons supplies to Ukraine. But they also, and she did attend the summit that he did choose to attend, was uh, the BRICS summit, of course, and we saw an expansion of the number of, of countries involved in there. So when you when you look at the sort of three aspects of what we're seeing around the world, what are we seeing in your mind? Um, I, I think we're seeing um, the reaction to the G7 and NATO getting stronger, largely on the basis of national security interests aligning. We're seeing the Chinese um, not wanting to break the global system, but worrying that the West is trying to contain them. And that's why they want to grow the BRICS. They, they don't like the U.S.-led G7 getting tighter. They don't like the quad and U.S.-led architecture in Asia that is feeling like it is aligned against China. They didn't show up at the G20 at the president level, in part because their relationship with India the president of the G20 this past year has such a negative relationship with them, positive with the U.S. For Russia, it's a very different story. They're, they're felt to be war criminals uh, by the United States and all of the top American allies. And there are a number of countries that will still do business with Russia, but they don't want to be seen as Russia's friends. They don't want to be seen as supporting or promoting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and, you know, what that means is that Putin is becoming more like Iran has been in the Middle East. What does it mean to be a rogue state? Well, for Iran, it's meant supporting proxy war in the region, promotion of radical organizations like Islamic Jihad um, and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, it's meant uh, drone strikes, cyber attacks, espionage. That behavior by Iran in the Middle East is what I increasingly expect from Russia against NATO frontline states, Europe, and even the United States and Canada. That, that's what I think it means for Russia to become a rogue state. The Americans increasingly have no further way to punish the Russians short of direct invasion. They've maximized sanctions. The Europeans have done 11 rounds. 
they're not they're saying he's a war criminal they think he should be in jail for Christ's sake so there's very little addition that the Americans can actually do um, and that that puts the Russians in a position where they are acting like a pariah yeah except perhaps supply more energy to the Europeans, admittedly it's being cushioned by China and India, but cutting off that financial flow, all the more important in light of what you're saying. Um, Ian, I would never get you on this show and talk about nation states without um, talking to you about one of the other predictions you made, and that's the sort of techno-polar world, this shift between power between nation states and some of the big tech companies. And you got a perfect messy illustration, I think, in what we saw over the Walter Isaacson book on Elon Musk and the questions, the enormous decision that seemingly was made over switching on Starlink satellites in Crimea. And at least from uh, the perspective of Elon Musk, a decision of what the result of using that technology and what the attack potentially could mean for an escalation in the war. Um, whatever you think on whatever side you're on, um, quite frankly, this is not a decision that any CEO of a company should be making, surely. Well, that, that is, it's very interesting. We're talking specifically about whether the Ukrainians would be supported in attacking Crimea, which of course is recognized by almost every country in the world as still part of Ukraine. So they're just trying to defend their own territory. Um, privately, uh, Western governments have been concerned, but just in the last 24 hours, it looks like the Ukrainians used UK storm shadow missiles to attack Sevastopol, the capital of Crimea, held right now by Russia. Uh, the Ukrainians are, of course, using drone strikes increasingly on a daily basis against Crimea. But when they wanted to use Elon Musk's Starlink, Elon personally, not the management of Starlink, not the CEO, Elon said no. Said, I don't feel comfortable. This could lead to World War III. Now, whatever you think about Elon's personal decision or you know what you might think about Jack Dorsey's personal decision to deplatform Trump from Twitter when he was president, the fact is these decisions are being made by individuals. Mm. They are not signatories to NATO. They are not members of treaties. They're not been elected by anybody. They're making decisions that are literally of life or death for Ukrainian national security and increasingly for security around the world. You're right, Julia. I refer to that as a technopolar world. And it's a very, very different geopolitical order than the one that you and I have grown up with. I mean, I, I sort of project this onto a Taiwan-China situation. And if uh, Elon were in the same situation with support for, for Taiwan against China, and not that we want to predict that or, or in any way sort of foresee that in the future. But um, again, what would the answer be in this situation? What do you do effectively if you need the technology that one of these tech companies provides? Do you turn around and, I don't know, nationalize the technology because it's what you need in the moment to be able to either prevent a bigger escalation or war or win one. It's kind of frightening. I mean, Elon Musk in an interview just yesterday uh, was making an analogy of Taiwan with mainland China to Hawaii in the United States. Look, I mean, I don't think Elon has a geopolitical preference on Taiwan, but I know that his business interests align very strongly with mainland China and not with Taiwan. In that regard, he's kind of more like LeBron James for the NBA on Hong Kong uh, than he is uh, a geopolitical actor. So he's going to do 
much more of what the Chinese government, mainland Chinese government, communist Chinese government wants him to do. And so that means if Taiwan were to need um, a, a technology like Starlink and no competitors exist uh, facing cyber strike, for example, first of all, Elon would not be in a position to allow them to have it. And secondarily, the Taiwanese government would not be in a position to trust Elon to give it to them and not provide intelligence along to the Chinese. By the way, a lot of Ukrainian officials were concerned about that in their conversations with Elon. They were worried that that was going to get back to the Kremlin. Uh, so, of course, um, if you're NATO, if you're the U.S. government, you have to be thinking, do we need to nationalize that technology? Do we have to invest in competitors domestically to make them national champions? I mean, we have a lot of American CEOs um, that are you know, building very big businesses. They're entrepreneurs. They're very effective. They're world class. But that doesn't mean they're patriotic in the geopolitical decisions they make. I mean, when Elon Musk says, I wanted to Netflix and chill, um, I didn't want to be a belligerent in the war. That's the position that a lot of American capitalists would be sympathetic to historically, except that when the war started, he was the one saying, I'm going to give this to the Ukrainians. I'm going to help them defend themselves. You can't do both. Um, and that's the problem, of course, that he's finding himself in today. Yeah, maybe governments have to work on quicker procurement and be in there first and so that the tech companies like the Microsofts and like the SpaceX or Elon Musk in this case aren't the first ones in there making some of these decisions. Hmm. Ian, we'll reconvene because I've run out of time. <laughs> it's always Absolutely. a pleasure. Thank you. See you soon. The president of Eurasia Group and Zero Media there. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move and to this. Smiling, cheering and clapping. That's chip designer arm ringing the opening bell there at the Nasdaq. The ticker tape is flying. It's making the biggest public debut of the year so far. Its IPO was priced at $51 a share, as we discussed earlier, giving it a 55 billion dollar valuation. We'll let you know when that begins to trade. Meanwhile, here's a look at uh, how the markets are trading at this stage. We've also had some data out from the United States this morning too. The producer price index, a key measure of price changes at the factory gate level. So this is the wholesale level rising 0.7% last month. That is a touch hotter than expected. Good news, however, US retail sales also coming in above expectations, jumping 0.6% from July. That's Pause for thought, though, of course, for the Federal Reserve and the possibility of future rate hikes. Now, if an industrial dispute between America's big three automakers and union leaders isn't resolved within a matter of hours, production lines across the country could grind to a halt. Both sides have until 11.59 p.m. tonight to reach an agreement or thousands of workers are set to walk off the job. The talks not necessarily going too well. And now the president of the United Auto Workers Union is announcing plans for a targeted strike at a limited number of plants. Vanessa Yakevich is outside GM's headquarters in Detroit. Vanessa, not sounding good, although you expect the posturing to be at peak, I think, at this moment. Um, what are we expecting in terms of these targeted strikes? if they do indeed go ahead. 
the stakes could not be higher right now. Just hours to go until potentially a historic strike by the United Auto Workers Union against all three major U.S. automakers. A targeted strike is a unique approach, something that we haven't seen used by the union since the late 1990s. But what it essentially means is that the national union will call on local unions to strike at specific times, specific dates, and at specific locations around the country. That is to keep the companies guessing. It's also a way for the union to keep some workers on the job so that they don't deplete their strike fund. But of course, this is a risky tactic because when you don't have a contract, the company is also not operating under a contract. And it's important to note that right now, the big three automakers have less inventory than they did in 2019, Sean Fain laid out this policy, this strike proposal that he's uh, that's going to go into effect tonight if they don't come to a deal. Listen first to how he put the state of negotiations and then listen to CEO of Ford, Jim Farley, on where he is feeling like things are standing right now. We're still very far apart on our key priorities from job security to ending tiers, from cost of living allowance to wage increases. We do not yet have offers on the table that reflect the sacrifice and contributions our members have made to these companies. To win, we're likely going to have to take action. On August 29th, we made our first offer almost two weeks ago to the UAW. We've made three offers since then, and we've had no genuine counteroffer on any of those. Now, Ford says they are still waiting on a counter offer to the offer that Bill Ford and Jim Farley walked over to the UAW headquarters on Tuesday. That was a historic offer, in their words, a 20 percent wage increase over four years. The union, though, as we know, is asking for a 40 percent pay increase over four years. So still a bit of negotiating uh, left to be done. Will it be enough and will it be in enough time before this deadline runs out, 11.59 p.m. Thursday, the strike would start at 12 a.m. Friday. That's when we will see workers walk off the job. Yeah, Julia? And we'll be watching. Vanessa, thank you for that. All right, after the break, from treating COVID to tackling cancers, CNN sat down with the Moderna CEO to talk about the future. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The CEO of Moderna responding to accusations of price gouging with its commercial COVID-19 vaccine, just as the company races Pfizer to bring mRNA technology to seasonal flu vaccines. In a new study, Moderna says its mRNA flu shot generated a better immune response in a new study than a vaccine that's already on the market. The findings paved the way for the company to discuss a path to approval with regulators. The hope is that seasonal mRNA flu vaccines can be designed and manufactured more quickly than shots based on older technology. Our medical correspondent, Meg Terrell, joins us now. Meg, I've lost him the ability to say mRNA. <laughs> it's been such a while. Um, the price gouging, let's talk about that very quickly first, because it stood out to me as just interesting from a perspective of what's changed between the delivery of those um, COVID vaccines and even how they're just being packaged and delivered today. It's economies of scale lost. 
It really is. And that was Stefan Bunsell, the CEO of Moderna's argument about why he says this is not price gouging. So their price to the government during the pandemic was about $15 a dose. Now the price in the commercial setting, the most sort of more normal way that the healthcare system purchases vaccines, is closer to $130 a dose. And that's similar to what Pfizer and Novavax are also charging for their vaccines now. He argues that during the pandemic, uh, these vaccines were provided in 10 dose vials. So healthcare providers had to buy the syringes separately. Uh, he also notes now they're putting them in pre-filled syringes, so that's more expensive. And as you pointed out, the volume is a lot lower. Fewer people are getting vaccines and less frequently, so they don't have those economies of scale. That is how he pushes back on the argument about price gouging. Now, a big question for Moderna, of course, is how it moves to the future beyond COVID. You talked about their flu results. That actually got a pretty good response from uh, folks, at least on Wall Street yesterday, watching Moderna's stock. But one of the most exciting programs people are watching from Moderna is in its individualized cancer treatment. Stefan Bunsell, the CEO of Moderna, explained how that works in our interview. Here's what he said. To make a product is individualized because you and I, even if we have both lung cancer, we will end up having a different chemical product. That product is injected intramuscular. It's the same technology, the same lipid as COVID or RSV or flu that we just spoke about. And what those products do once in your body, and we have now demonstrated that clinically, is it basically activate your T cell to help your immune system fight your cancer directly. So the product we make is not directly the medicine, but it's the tools for your immune system to recognize the mutation on your cancer cell that it did not recognize before, so that it can take care of your cancer. So Julia, they've already had results in melanoma and lung cancer. Combining this treatment with Merck's Keytruda, which is a very powerful immunotherapy on its own. A lot of folks saying both for Moderna and for BioNTech, which is, of course, another huge mRNA player, this could be the future of that technology. Yeah, and I know more of this interview is available on the web, and I'll tweet out more details too because it's so interesting. Fingers crossed for success on the cancer fronts too. Meg, great interview, as always. Meg Terrell, thank you. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. We'll see you tomorrow.